Well, good morning, fellowship. How's everyone doing today? Good. All right. Well, oh, there we go. You're back. You chose to come back. Thank you for coming back for round two. Really good to see you this morning. Uh, I'm sure there's a couple faces in the audience that I did not see last week. So if that's the case, if we didn't uh, cross paths last week, quick introduction. My name is Mike. Uh, I'm a member here at Fellowship, uh, celebrating my 20th year at Fellowship next month, actually. One of the elders here at the church and really grateful to be a part of a summer series in apologetics. Uh, We'll be together for the entire month of July, giving Rob and Lloyd hopefully a little bit of time to put on some sunscreen, uh, stretch their legs, enjoy some rest so they can come back refreshed to teach us the Gospel of John uh, in the month of August. Um, So for four weeks, starting last week, we're going to be doing something that will look and feel a little bit more like Sunday school than normal church. And I hope that you're okay with that. This is designed to be an equipping series where we're going to be able to arm you and prepare you to be able to give a ready defense for your faith. We learned last week uh, about this verse uh, in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 15. Can I get you to read this with me one more time, if that's all right? But in your hearts... Revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect. We are to be prepared to give an answer to anyone who asks us to give the reason for the hope that we have. This series is intended to be able to equip you and arm you with some of the defense for the Christian faith. We learned last week that apologetics is the reasonable defense of the Christian faith. Now, two comments on last week, and then we're gonna move forward into this week. First of all, we learned last week why apologetics are important for every believer. This is just not something that's to be left to the scholars and the universities, etc. Apologetics have a place and a role in the life of the everyday believer, and we looked at some of those reasons last week. We also looked at the manuscript evidence that would demonstrate the preservation of the New Testament document. And we realize that the New Testament has successfully survived the passage of time over the last 2,000 years. Uh, We learned as we got into the data that the New Testament not only has more manuscript copies, 5,300 roughly copies, but we also have closer dating to the originals than any other document from the ancient world. It is literally the best attested document from antiquity that exists. This gives textual critics full assurance that the document that we have in our hands today, the New Testament in your hands and in mine is the same document that was written over 2,000 or roughly 2,000 years ago. It has not been tampered with in that time. This is a successful and an accurate reproduction of the original text. That's point number one from last week. Point number two is this. I need to revisit something that I said last week uh, because I got a text message on Friday or on Saturday from Rob Sweet. The rascal's not entirely on vacation. He listened to last week's message online. And he said, Mike, I want you to double check one thing you said last week specifically about the Dead Sea Scrolls. And I said, sure. And he said, I said, what specifically? Rob was with the group from our church in Israel two months ago, and he was at Qumran, where the Dead Sea Scrolls were found, and he was looking at some stuff, and someone in the group asked a question, and the answer that person got in Qumran was different from what I presented last week, and so I just want to acknowledge this briefly. When I was in seminary 20 years ago, 
There's a handful of uh, manuscript uh, fragments from the Dead Sea Scrolls that were considered disputed even at that time, but they were included in the preservation or in the presentation of the defense of the New Testament. Since I graduated from seminary about 20 years ago, there's been additional scholarship that has come out that actually calls into question the authorship and the dating of the uh, New Testament fragments that were found among the Dead Sea Scrolls. So I actually want to strike from my presentation last week the portion that I uh, referred to regarding the New Testament fragments found among the Dead Sea Scrolls. In the spirit of, if this can't hold up to a university-level scrutiny looking at the latest scholarship, I don't want to put it in front of you. Right, so I want to pull back that piece of what I presented last week, and I want to thank Rob for the nudge. Uh, in the spirit of humility, in the spirit of accuracy, in the spirit of always being able to say this is the best scholarship and this is the defense upon which we present our case, I want to make sure we're presenting this as accurately and as clearly as we can. So I was really grateful for Rob's text asking me to go back and see, hey, just make sure what you're saying is bang on. When I was in seminary 20 years ago, that was the presentation. Some things have come forward in the last 20 years that would call into question those manuscripts from the Dead Sea Scrolls. Now the question becomes, does that change anything? Are, are we still hanging our hat on something good? Guys, look at the evidence. We have 5,300 manuscripts. If this was a court of law, think of those as 53 independent witnesses speaking to the preservation of the New Testament text. If we're calling a few of those into question saying, yeah, I'm not sure if we should include those. Well, if this was Tacitus or Herodotus when you've got like eight copies, you might have trouble presenting your case. We have 5,300 manuscripts that we're weighing into evidence. Our case by no means hinges on a handful of fragments that were found among the Dead Sea Scrolls. You can be sure, as I stated last week, we have a fully accurate and trustworthy reproduction of the original New Testament that was written 2,000 years ago. But you might recall last week, we ended off on a bit of a cliffhanger intentionally, and we, we looked at the question, okay, Mike, that New Testament that you're talking about, I'll concede it's been preserved. I'll concede that that text looks like it's been unchanged in the last 2,000 years of, of textual transmission, but why do you Christians think that the Bible is the word of God and not just another book written by men? I mean, there's other books in the religious marketplace that would claim divine inspiration in one way or another. I've got a copy of the Quran right here uh, from Muhammad. It claims to be a text inspired by an angel of God. The Book of Mormon says in the subtext that it's another testament of Jesus Christ. So the Bible is in no way unique in that it claims divine inspiration. In fact, we're kind of one of many. And so why do we think that the Bible in our hands is distinctive in any way? Well, that's the question we're going to ask this morning. And specifically, I want you to ponder this. If God wrote a book, how would you know? If God wrote a book, how would you know? What would you be looking for in that book to determine whether or not this book came from God? It's an interesting question. And I might suggest that we may not know how a book would be different if it was authored by God. But can we agree that it should be different in some way? It, it should have some hallmarks that would identify the fingerprints of the divine on this book. It shouldn't just read like everything else out there in literature. There should be something that's different about a book if it came from God. And so here's how I want to approach our subject matter this morning. I want to ask the question, how is the Bible different from every other book ever written? How is the Bible truly unique from any other literature, including religious literature? And we're going to go at the topic that way. 
Now, as is often the case and will be the case in the time that we're together, I feel like I'm uh, trying to condense this much content into this much time. So forgive me if we're moving quickly, um, but I want to cover as much ground today as I can. So in what way is the Bible unique? Well, the first way that the Bible is unique is that it is unique in survival, okay? You might be saying, Mike, we discussed that last week. Yes, we did discuss this last week. We learned that there's more manuscripts and closer dating than any other work from antiquity. And you might be saying, what's unique about that? Well, what's unique about that is what the Bible had to go through to survive until this day. Now you see, starting with um, Emperor Nero around AD 64 and lasting for roughly 250 years until the rise of Constantine at around 306 AD, there was a 250 year period where the Bible was under intense persecution and it was an incredibly difficult time in the early church. Why? Well, Romans were polytheists. Romans could worship any God that they wanted to under one condition you also had to worship Caesar as God himself on earth. Caesar is the Roman emperor. And if you didn't worship Caesar, you were considered to be a rebel against the state. You were violating the covenant that Rome had with her gods. You know what was, what was interesting about these Christians? They kind of had a finicky preference in this regard. They refused to worship Caesar as God because only Jesus, they felt, was worthy of worship. And so in taking this stance, they were considered rebels. They were considered uh, rebelling against the state. And numerous uh, Roman emperors, starting with Nero and then going on over a number of years until Emperor Diocletian, there were numerous edicts of persecution that went out against Christians. And during this time, my friends, Christians were rounded up and they were given a choice. You can either hand over your religious writings right, your, your holy book, the New Testament, you can hand over your writings and recant your faith or else hold on to your faith and agree to worship uh, Caesar or you cannot do that and we will take care of you. We will, uh, we will make sport of you in the way we see fit, i.e., we're gonna put you to death. Now, this level of persecution wasn't the same in every area of the Roman Empire, but in many areas, it was highly condensed and it was highly difficult. And this is a painting of what it looked like during this time. This painting is entitled, A Christian Martyr's Final Prayer. And what you see here is a group of, we presumably Christians on the floor of the arena. There's an elderly man standing up and calling out to God. What you can't see very well is that there's a number of uh, uh, crosses around the floor of the Roman Colosseum. I'll expand this picture in a bit. And this man standing up is probably the pastor of this church. Why is he praying? Well, because of what's about to happen. As you can see alluded to in this expanded uh, depiction of this painting, the Christian martyrs, martyrs' final prayer. Guys, this was an this was a period of incredible hardship during the early church. Uh, can we agree that evangelism might have been a touch tricky during this time? Come be a Christian. If you're lucky, they'll kill you quickly. Kind of a tough new members class, right? Come be a Christian. If you're lucky, they'll kill you quickly. Guys, many believers died during this 250-year period, and many of our earliest copies of our New Testament manuscripts were destroyed during this period. And it wouldn't come to an end, again, until uh, Emperor Constantine rose to power and, and eliminated these persecutions against believers. But despite this hardship, despite this persecution, the Bible would survive. The church would survive. But do you know that the persecution against the Word of God, against the Bible, it wouldn't end there. 
When you get to the Middle Ages and to the Dark Ages, there were prohibitions against reading the Bible. If you know your European history, the period leading up to the time of the Reformation was a time when the Bible only existed in Latin, and you weren't allowed to translate the Bible into a language you understood. You were not allowed to. You were not allowed to read the Bible for yourself. One of the reasons why Martin Luther rallied against this or railed against this because he thought the Bible belonged to every person and deserved to be understood by all. But the politicians, the political leaders and the religious leaders held people outside from being able to read and understand the Bible for themselves. Right? So there was prohibitions against reading it and translating it. A few hundred years later, there was denials against the Bible's authority. Uh, during the time of the Enlightenment, uh, this guy was an Enlightenment thinker, Voltaire, French philosopher, French historian, Voltaire was a guy who argued against the validity of the Bible and against the authority of the Bible. What's unique about that? Well, you might say, maybe that's not unique. But what I love about Voltaire is he went on the historical record and he said that in less than 100 years, Christianity will be swept from existence. Well, what's unique about that? Voltaire died and 50 years after Voltaire's death, the Geneva Bible Society bought his house and began printing Bibles on Voltaire's own printing press. I love the irony in that. Yes, you can be sure that God, in fact, does have a sense of humor. After the 1700s, you can progress to this day. Guys, do you know that around the world today, there are still numerous countries where it's illegal to own a Bible? North Korea is one, several countries in Africa, numerous countries in the, in the Middle East. It is literally illegal to own a Bible. I would argue in the history of humanity, no book has been more loved than this book. And I would also argue that no book has been more hated. Why is the survival of the Bible unique? Guys, no one has ever tried to rid the earth or wipe from the earth the writings of Plato. No one has ever totally tried to eradicate the writings of Homer. No one has. Or for that matter, the writings from the prophet Muhammad. No one has ever tried to rid the world of this book. But many times over many years, people have tried to eradicate this book from existence, and yet it survives to this day. A historian named Bernard Ram says it this way, a thousand times the death knell of the Bible has sounded. The funeral procession has formed, the inscription cut on the tombstone and the committal read, but somehow the corpse never stays put. You guys, the end of the Bible has been decreed time and time again, and yet it lasts to this day. What's unique about that? I think if God wrote a book, he'd make sure that it stood. He'd make sure that it lasts. And Jesus himself said, heaven and, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. He also says in that same book, I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear. My friends, the Bible is unique in its survival. How else is the Bible unique? The Bible is unique in its unity. The Bible is unique in its unity. Before I make a case for the unity of the Bible, let me make a case and make sure you understand the diversity of the Bible first, because this for me is really interesting. First things first, the Bible was composed over a roughly 1,500 year period of time. Moses was the first entry into the Old Testament. He wrote the Pentateuch, first five books of the Old Testament. 
And then John closed the canon somewhere around 90 or 95 AD when he authored the Gospel of John and Revelation and so forth. And it was considered that he did his writings in exile from the island of Patmos. So there's roughly a 1,500-year period that the Bible was composed. Okay? Uh, the Bible is written... Uh, over, sorry, the 66 books of the Bible, 66 independent entries of the Bible, were composed by 40 different authors. Now think about that for a second. 40 different people helped to contribute to the Bible. And these authors, these contributors, varied widely in terms of their backgrounds, their education levels, their positions on the socioeconomic ladder, and so forth, even the regions they wrote from. Um, some of the composers of the Bible some of the contributors to the Bible were kings. David and Solomon were kings. These people occupied the highest office in the land and they helped to contribute to the canon of scripture. And yet you also have shepherds like Amos. You have fishermen like Peter and like John. These are some of the lower blue collar craftsmen that also contributed to the same document. You got Nehemiah, who was a cupbearer. You got Daniel, who was a prime minister. You've got Joshua, who was a military general. Paul, who was a rabbi. You got Matthew. What was Matthew's occupation? He was a tax collector. He was with the Roman IRS, right? And then you've got Luke. What was Luke's occupation? He was a doctor. Yeah. So you've got all these different people, all these different backgrounds, and they're all contributing to the same book. The Bible was composed in three different languages, Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic, and it was written on three different continents, Europe, Africa, and Asia. That's a ton of diversity. By the way, just to compare that to the Quran, the Quran was written over a 23-year period. It was written by one person, Muhammad, in one language, Arabic, in one region of Saudi Arabia. Not too tough to arrive at unity when you've got those small variables. We're talking 1,500 years, 40 authors, multiple languages. It's really hard to arrive at common agreement when you've got that much diversity. And yet, throughout the Bible, although it was composed by many people of diverse backgrounds over many years, Scripture speaks from one mind. It is remarkably unified amidst its tremendous diversity. From paradise lost until paradise regained all the way in Revelation, there is a single central story of the Bible, and that is God's redemptive plan for mankind. There's also a central figure in the Bible, one central figure, and that is the person of Jesus Christ. And you might be saying, okay, Mike, hold on now. I'm going to fact check you for a second. I've read that book, and that person, Jesus, he doesn't show up until you get three quarters of the way through the book. How can you say that Jesus is the central figure of the Bible? Well, that's easy. In the Old Testament, the promised Messiah of Israel is anticipated. And in the New Testament, the promised Messiah of Israel is revealed. In fact, there's very interesting promises about the coming Messiah. There's predictions about him, but there's also some very interesting allusions to, to Christ throughout the Old Testament. And even Jesus himself speaks to this. You might recall the story in the New Testament where um, Jesus is crucified on the Friday and then uh, the women are coming to the tomb on the Sunday morning to, to anoint Jesus' body with herbs and spices and so forth. And it's discovered that the tomb is empty. And so the women are creating the stir in Jerusalem. The tomb is empty, the tomb is empty, something's going on. 
And the story goes in Luke 24 that there's a couple of travelers going along a road to a place called Emmaus, and they're discussing the recent events in Jerusalem over the last several days. And a traveler comes up beside them and says, hey, what are you guys talking about? And they said, haven't you heard what's going on in Israel in these last few days? There was this great teacher that we thought was a prophet. We thought he was the promised one of God. He was crucified, but now his tomb is empty and we don't know what to make of it. And then Jesus says, well, can I walk with you guys for a bit? And they're like, sure. Well, they decide to pull over and stop for some food. And when they stop for food, Jesus reveals to these people that he was the guy that was on the cross and he's the person they're talking about. And what's interesting in this verse, it's Luke 24, 27. Jesus says to them, or it's said about this experience, in beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them all that was said in this, so what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. He said to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Jesus is taking these guys through a Bible study of sorts. And you might be saying, oh, so he's walking them through the New Testament. Uh-uh. The New Testament hadn't even been started yet. Jesus is taking these people through the Old Testament and showing these, these guys where Jesus is found on the pages of the Old Testament. When I read that verse, I think to myself, man, what I would have given to have been a fly on the wall in that Bible study. That would have been an incredible experience. Now, as I alluded to a moment ago, there's all kinds of specific predictions about the coming Messiah of Israel. There's specific predictions or prophecies about who he would be, how he would minister, how he would live and die, and so forth. But there's also foreshadowing of Jesus in the Old Testament. And sometimes we might miss this. It's the foreshadowing, the less than overt suggestions of Jesus that I find fascinating when I look at the Old Testament. Let me share just a few of these with you. In the Old Testament, we can look at the book of Genesis. And you know that Jesus is foreshadowed in Abel, the brother of Cain, who although innocent was slain and whose blood cries out. Do you know that Jesus is foreshadowed in Isaac? Isaac who carried his own wood to the place where he would willingly lay down his life to be sacrificed. Jesus is foreshadowed in Joseph. I love the story of Joseph in the Old Testament. He's found between Genesis 36 and Genesis 50. When I was a student at Bible school in Sweden, we had to do a character study from anyone we wanted to choose from the Old Testament. And I chose Joseph because I thought the guy's story was just so interesting. And as I pulled together my information for this character study, I was baffled to discover that I found 21 similarities between the life of Joseph and the life of Jesus. 21. Listen to some of these. Both of them were beloved by their father. Both of them were hated by their brothers. Both of them rose to public prominence at the age of 30. Both of them were falsely accused. Both of them had their garments forcibly removed from them. Both of them were taken to Egypt. You might say, well, that's interesting, Mike. You know, sort of, who cares? Well, it gets more interesting. Do you know that both of them were betrayed for the price of a slave by a man named Judah? Now, Judas, in the New Testament, that's just a derivative of Judah, like Steve and Stephen are the same name. Both of them were betrayed for the price of a slave by a man named Judah. It gets better. Do you know that both of them were placed between two criminals, one who would be saved and one who would be lost? Wow. Both of them would save their nation. 
Both of them would rise to power. Both of them would be seated at the right hand of power. Both of them would use this power to not exact revenge on those that had wronged them, but rather to extend forgiveness to those that had wronged them. And of both of them, it could be rightly said that what, God, or what man had intended to harm them, God intended for good. Guys, there is a list that's so long. This is just a handful of the 21 similarities that I discovered while I was at Bible school. And my friends, this is just some of the foreshadowing in one of the books of the Old Testament. We have 39 books There's 38 we haven't even gotten to. And so when Jesus takes people through a Bible study of where he's found in the Old Testament, you need to understand he is all over the Old Testament. This incredible unity we find in the Old Testament, it can only be accounted for by the existence of a divine mind that inspired each of the writers of Scripture. And this mind wove each of the individual pieces into a single mosaic of truth. They all shaped progressively, progressively, progressively the identification of the promised Messiah that would be revealed in the New Testament. Now, the next similarity, we've looked at the Bible is unique in its survival. We've looked at the Bible is unique in its unity. What's number three? The Bible is unique in predictive prophecy. The Bible is unique in predictive prophecy. What is prophecy? Prophecy is when God enables human messengers to foretell future events. God seems to use prophecy as an indicator light, suggesting that it's him speaking, not the human messenger that he is using. And Jesus in John 14 even suggests this. Jesus says, now I have told you before it comes to pass so that when it comes to pass, you may believe. He is saying only God can rightly and accurately predict the future. And I'm going to tell you right now what's going to happen so you can realize it is God himself who is speaking to you. Scattered throughout the Bible, my friends, are a multitude of extremely specific predictions. Most of these recorded hundreds and hundreds of years in advance of their fulfillment. And I'm fully convinced that when writers of scripture would have written these things down, it would have weirded them out from time to time because they would have had no idea what they were saying. I'll give you a case in point in that. Isaiah prophesies in chapter 44 and 45 of his book, he predicts that the Babylonian exile will end with a return to Judah and a restoration of their ruins. And he goes on to predict that a man named Cyrus uh, will uh, authorize the rebuilding of the Jewish temple. And you might say, well, why is that weird? Well, to those living in Israel at this time, it's very weird, why? because they're not in captivity. The Babylonian exile hadn't started yet. It's sort of business as usual in Israel. Nothing strange going on. They're gonna gonna restore the ruins? Oh, that building that's still standing, you mean? Cyrus is gonna reauthorize the reconstruction of the temple that's over there where where we're doing sacrifices right now? It must have seemed really weird to these guys that are writing down these prophecies because they're going, that doesn't even make sense to me. But okay, I'll write it down. Like it must have been a strange experience for some of these guys. Now, regarding uh, Jesus, the promised Messiah of Israel, there are a host of very specific predictions about Jesus, right? About where he'd come from, about his ministry, about his life and his death. Someone shout out where you're at right now. Don't be shy. Shout out one of the specific predictions or prophecies about Jesus that we find in the Old Testament. That what? That he'd be born of a virgin. Yes, great. What's another one? 
That he what? No bones broken. Ah, that he would have no bones broken. Yes. What's another one? Bethlehem. That he would be born in Bethlehem. Yep, Micah 5.2. What's another one? What's another prophecy of the promised Messiah of Israel? That he'd be of the line of David. I heard something else. That he'd ride in Jerusalem as a king on a donkey. Zechariah 9.9. Good job. What's another promised uh, prophecy or a prophecy or prediction of the Messiah of Israel? What's that? That he'd be despised. Did I hear something over here? That he'd heal the blind. Yep. Guys, do you know that there are over 60 prophecies, 60 specific predictions about the life, ministry, and death of Jesus? That he'd be of the line of Isaac, that he'd be of the tribe of Judah, that he'd be a direct descendant of David. Someone had already mentioned that he would be born in Bethlehem and that he'd be born of a virgin. It was predicted that he would minister in Galilee, that he would perform many miracles. It was prophesied that he would have a forerunner announcing his coming. Someone mentioned that he would ride into Jerusalem on a donkey, that he would be rejected by his own people. Interesting, he was speci it was specifically predicted that he would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. It's a very precise one. Uh, someone over here mentioned it was uh, predicted that his hands and his feet would be pierced, which is interesting because that prophecy was written around 700 BC before the Romans had even invented crucifixion. It was also said that none of his bones would be broken. Interesting about that is on the left and the right of Jesus on the cross, both of his neighbors had their bones broken, but he didn't. Very interesting. It's prophesied that he'd be with a rich man in his death. Guys, 60 plus predictions of the promised Messiah of Israel. And when you look at some of these predictions, you might encounter a naysayer or a skeptic that says, you know, Mike, that, some of those aren't really impressive. I mean, Jesus could have simply chosen to ride a donkey into Jerusalem like a king. Yeah, I'll give you that. He, he could have chosen to do that in the, in the fulfillment of that prophecy. That might not seem super compelling. And you might say, they might say, Mike, Jesus probably, if he had spent any time in Jerusalem, he would, have set, he would have seen people that got into a lot of trouble and suffered capital punishment. He would have seen people that were crucified to crosses around Jerusalem, people who were put to death. So he probably knew that if he got himself into enough hot water, that that punishment awaited him as well. I might concede that point to you as well. But could he control where he would be born? Could he control what family line he would descend from? Could he control whether or not people would gamble for his garments when he was on the cross? Could he control whether or not the person would break his legs while he was on the cross? There are so many things he had no control over. And those are the things we need to look at. Now, as we think through the specific predictions about the Messiah of Israel, I want us to have a conversation about what are the odds that these prophecies would be fulfilled in the same one person? Uh, there's a guy named uh, Professor Peter Stoner. He's a professor at the University of Chicago uh, specializing in science and mathematics. And Peter Stoner put uh, one of his graduate classes to the test on this. And he said, class, I want you to work together and calculate the conservative odds of eight of these prophecies of the Old Testament becoming fulfilled in the same one person. Not 60, we're gonna choose eight, only eight. And I need you to determine what are the conservative odds of eight of these being fulfilled in the same person. Now, to agree on how the odds are calculated, let me show you how the math works on this, okay? Let's just say that one out of every 10 men is bald. 
Now I'm scanning the room to see if that's a roughly fair assessment. I think we're probably in the range. Let's just say that one out of every 10 men is bald, okay? And let's say that one out of every 100 men is missing a finger, okay? So the question becomes, what are the odds of finding a bald man who was also missing a finger, okay? What's the number? What are the odds of finding a man who's bald who at the same time fulfills the other requirement and is missing a finger? What are the odds? One in what? One out of a thousand. Lily's right. It's one out of a thousand because you have to multiply your entities to be able to come up. And what's interesting, I actually know a bald guy who's missing a finger. So that's kind of fun. But you have to multiply your entities. The number is one out of a thousand because you have to fulfill this criteria and then fulfill this criteria and then fulfill this criteria and they get multiplied against each other to be able to come up with the odds. Well, so Peter Stoner's question is, what are the mathematical odds that we would have eight of the messianic prophecies fulfilled in the same person? And he gave his class this list of prophecies. Right, just Here's the eight. Let's go to work on this. And here's what he found out. Peter Stoner said, as he got his class to do work on this, and he validated and he asked questions, he figured out that the odds of this being fulfilled in the eight prophecies in the same one person was one out of 100 quadrillion. One out of 100 quadrillion. And you might even say, I don't even know how to relate to that number. And I didn't either. So here, here's how you relate to that number. When I was a kid, I collected silver dollars. I, I love these things. For whatever reason, when I was a young boy, I thought silver dollars were just the coolest thing in the world. I have a whole case of these back home. And I just love silver dollars for some reason. What we're gonna do is we need to think about how do we get to 100 quadrillion silver dollars. First of all, we gotta make sure that you realize that one of these is the Messiah. One of these I've put a marking on to distinguish it from the other silver dollars in my hand. This coin is gonna go in the pile. It's gonna go face down. And I'm gonna stack silver dollars and we're gonna have to figure out how can we find the Messiah. Here's what we need to do though to get to 100 quadrillion silver dollars. First of all, we're gonna stack them two feet tall. This stack of 12 is roughly two inches tall, okay? So we're gonna stack these two feet tall and the question becomes how big of an area do we fill before we get to 100 quadrillion silver dollars? Now, if we fill this auditorium, Two feet deep with silver dollars, are we at 100 quadrillion silver dollars yet? Yes or no? Not yet, okay? Let's expand the reach a bit. If we filled all of Brentwood, Tennessee, two feet deep with silver dollars, are we at 100 quadrillion yet? Haven't even started. If we fill all of Middle Tennessee, draw a line north to south across Middle Tennessee, fill it with silver dollars, are we at 100 quadrillion yet? Not yet. My friends, you'd have to cover a landmass the size of Texas. 269,000 square miles. Two foot deep with silver dollars. And here's your quest. Here's how you get this right. The Messiah is lurking in those silver dollars somewhere. He's hiding. But he's face down somewhere in Texas. And what you need to do is you need to get in a helicopter and you can fly anywhere you want. You can go to El Paso, you can go to Corpus Christi, you can go to Durango, you can go to New Braunfels. Pick your favorite spot in Texas, but you get to fly anywhere and with a blindfold, 
have the helicopter put you down and you get to reach down and you have to pull it right once the first time. That's the odds of successfully fulfilling eight of the messianic prophecies in the same one person. You guys, I have chills as I talk about this. When you look at that, you might say, okay, that's impossible. And you know what? That is impossible. Now you might be saying, oh, Mike, no, no, no. People win the lottery every day. Yeah, people win the lottery because that's one chance in 176 million. I just Googled that yesterday. One out of 176 million. There's about 7 billion people on the planet. How many planet Earths do we need to have of people to be able to get to 100 quadrillion? An impossible number. We need more than a million planet Earths filled with 7 billion inhabitants to get to one in 100 quadrillion. Guys, when you look at this, you need to understand that the odds of these eight prophecies being fulfilled in the same one person, they are truly impossible. Why? Because only God can do this. When you look at the Quran, when you look at the Book of Mormon, when you look at the Hindu Vedas, when you look at the Bhagavad Gita, none of these writings contain predictive prophecy. You know why? Because only God can do this. This is truly the signature of the divine in your hands. The Bible stands alone in that it contains predictive prophecy. The last thing we'll look at today, and I'm going to wrap up our time with this, the fourth and final item we'll discuss in terms of how the Bible is different from any other book is this. And this is less academic. This is more perhaps just a personal interest. Guys, the Bible is unique in grace. The Bible is unique in grace. When I took a course in seminary on comparative religions, I learned that every religion in the world, and based on the teachings of their holy book, every religion in the world has three things in common. I almost said four, but it's actually only three. The first thing that all religions have in common is this. They all believe in a divine essence. They all believe in a divine essence. That's some, some concept of God. Some uh, religions are uh, pantheistic. Pantheism means that God is in everything and God is everything, right? Some religions believe that God is a pantheistic God. Uh, others believe that God is polytheistic, that there are many gods. Other uh, belief systems believe that God is monotheistic, just a singular God, but all of them agree in common that there is some conception of God that they all share. Not the same, but they all have a conception of God. The number two thing that all religions of the world have in common is this. They all believe in the existence of a moral law, a standard of conduct that seems to have been imprinted on all of us that we are aware of. There's something in us that's not because of where we live, how we were taught, how our parents raised us. Something has been hardwired into our hearts that tells us how we are to behave. And as, as is often the case, I find C.S. Lewis says it best. Human beings, he says, in mere Christianity, human beings all over the earth have this curious idea that they ought to behave a certain way and they cannot really get rid of it. Something appears in me as law urging me to do right and making me feel responsible and uncomfortable when I do wrong. There's something in me that's telling me there's a certain way I'm supposed to behave and act. So the existence of the moral law. What's interesting about this moral law that's in all of us is we also recognize universally, universally that we have broken this moral law. Lewis will go on to say this. 
He says, I'm only trying to call attention to the fact that this year or this month or more likely this very day, we have failed to practice ourselves the kind of behavior that we expect from other people. All cultures agree in prescribing behavior which their adherents fail to practice. All men stand under condemnation, and this condemnation does not come from alien code of ethics, but by their own. And all men, therefore, are conscious of guilt. So we're aware of this moral law. We're mindful that we violated this moral law, and we feel uneasy about this. Well, why? Because of the third point. All world religions agree that the first two points are somehow connected. God exists, a moral law exists, and somehow we believe that when we break the moral law, we have somehow offended the divine essence. Every religion in the world, including ours, believes this. These are universally accepted across all religious belief systems. Now, some religions think that the uh, divine essence is the originator of the moral law. Some of them think that the, the divine essence is merely the custodian or the keeper of the moral law, but they all agree that when we violate the moral law, we offend the divine essence, and all of us are somehow at odds with the divine essence. And we, as Christians, would hold to that as well. Uh, in our New Testament, Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Reference to the moral law and to the odds we're at with our creator. Isaiah 59.2 says, your sin has separated you from your God. So all religions, including us, the teachings of our book would affirm these first three points. But when we introduce a fourth point, now we will see the Bible start to differentiate or separate itself from the rest of the pack. The fourth point is this. How can someone um, earn back their right into a right relationship with their holy God? How can a mankind be restored to favor with the holy God? Well, every world religion but one believes that we must earn something, we must do something to earn favor back with the holy God. All religions except for one, all religious writings except for one would suggest that we need to engage in a new set of moral behaviors and do something to be able to earn our way back into favor with the holy God that we have offended. Every religious belief system in the world except for one will tell you that salvation is through works. You have to do something to find your way back into favor with the God that you have offended. How is the Bible different in this regard? How is it distinctive? Well, the Bible alone says that there's nothing we can do to balance the scales with God. The getting right with God has been done for us. All we need to do is accept the gift that was provided to us for free. Jesus has done the work of getting right with God for us and all that is required of us is to embrace him, to trust him, and to accept his free gift. The world spells salvation with two letters, D-O. The Bible and Christianity spells salvation with four letters, D-O-N-E. There is nothing we can do to earn favor back with God. God has made the provision for us and that is the fourth way that the Bible is unique. In fact, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 says this, and we can get ready with the worship band to wrap us up today. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 says, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourself, it is the gift of God. It is not by works, lest any man should boast. My friends, in summary, the Bible is unique in its survival. The Bible is unique in unity. The Bible is unique in predictive prophecy. And the Bible is unique in grace. 
And if I can just make a quick note, I see occasionally people holding up your phone to the screen. Just I'll give you a quick note. Every copy of my PowerPoint and every copy of my teaching notes is going to go up to the website, to the same place where the recorded sermons are stored. And every now and then I'll also have uh, an article, such as the one from Peter Stoner, that will go up as support material in the event that you want to have conversations in fellowship groups or somewhere else about some of the content that we're covering in our time together. Let me pray. Jesus, thank you so much. Uh, for who you are. Thank you that you are the fulfillment of the promised Messiah of Israel from so many years ago. Lord, there's a longing and a groaning for things to be made right in this world. We see the effects of sin. We see the destruction and the hardship that sin has brought to this world. And all of creation groans and longs for things to be made right. Thank you, Lord, that you are that path, that you are the provision for sins, that you are the way that we are restored back to a holy God. Jesus, we thank you for the price you paid on the cross. We thank you for the Bible that survives to this day. Thank you for helping us to understand how it's distinctive, how it's unique, how it is the source of life. And Lord, I pray you to give us not just the courage, but also the confidence to share this message with others. Help us to be bold, full of grace, full of humility, full of respect. But Lord, help us to be bold. Help us to take a stand for who you are and for what you've done. In your wonderful name, Lord, we pray. Amen.